I'm Anna Åberg. And I'm Anthony Froggart. And this is The Climate Briefing, a podcast from Chatham House. Hello everyone, welcome back to The Climate Briefing. My name is Anna Åberg and I'm absolutely delighted to be back in the Chatham House recording studio after a very long pause to relaunch The Climate Briefing podcast. Many things are the same as before. The podcast will still focus on international climate politics and the UN climate negotiations. But some things are also a bit different. Most importantly, my podcast co-host Ben Horton has moved on to another role within Chatham House. But I'm absolutely delighted that another colleague of mine, Anthony Froggett, will be co-hosting the podcast with me from now on. Anthony, hey, how are you doing? Great. Really good to be here. Super. Perhaps you could tell our listeners a bit about yourself. Yeah, I've been around at Chatham House for, seems like a long time, but over 10 years. I work on climate change and energy issues and have, over the last few years, followed quite closely the COP negotiations and in particular around COP26. And I've worked a lot on Brexit and energy and climate. So lots of current developments in this area. Fantastic. Well, it's great to be co-hosting this podcast with you from now on. Today's episode will focus on COP27, the next UN Climate Change Summit. And what we're trying to do is to disentangle and hopefully provide some clarity on what this meeting is all about. Just to say that we did record this interview in late June, but it remains highly relevant. Hope you enjoy listening. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to The Climate Briefing. My name is Anna Oberg, and I'm absolutely delighted to be joined today by Tom Evans, who is a researcher in E3G's Geopolitics, Climate Diplomacy and Security Program. And we're going to be talking about the next UN Climate Change Summit, COP27, which is taking place in Egypt in November this year. Tom, lovely to see you. How are you doing? I'm good. Thanks for having me on. No, thanks for coming. So let's dig in. Tom, imagine I am somebody who knows what a COP is but that I don't know anything about COP27 specifically. How would you describe to me what the main aims of this summit are? What do I need to know? Sure. So the best place to start is probably at the previous COP, COP26, which was in Glasgow last November. And obviously that was you know, a major media moment, headlines around the world really focused on this global gathering of world leaders and negotiators in Glasgow. But I think the key thing is to really look at what came out of that and Essentially, what happened is we got a lot of new promises and a lot of new forward pathways to tackle some of the big climate change issues in terms of reducing emissions, but also dealing with the impacts of climate change and crucially the finance needed to do both of those. But essentially coming into COP27, there's major question marks as to how we actually turn some of those processes that were coming out of COP26 into reality And to kind of make it a bit simple, I think there's two words that come to mind when we think of COP27. We have impacts and implementation. Impacts is all about actually addressing the fact that climate impacts are hitting frontline communities really, really hard. We're seeing this year, especially every time I look at the paper, there's some sort of heat wave, there's some sort of cyclone, flooding. It's really obvious to everyone now that we have to actually develop a a proper response to dealing with that. And that's, you know, the big question is how do we fund that? And this is the topic known as loss and damage finance, essentially developed countries sticking up money to pay for the impacts in developing countries because they cannot do that themselves. They don't have the capacity. The other question is implementation. So actually 
at COP26, we saw lots of countries coming forward with new targets for reducing their emissions by 2030. But the question is actually, can we deliver on them? And so developing new systems and collaboration to actually reduce emissions, not just set targets to do that, is one of the big focuses of COP27. Thanks, that's really clear. And there's a lot in there, which I'm sure we'll pick up on later in this conversation. So say we're at the end of COP27 then. In your view, what would a good outcome look like coming out of that summit? That's a really good question. It's it's quite a tough one because I think at the moment the global community and countries and negotiators haven't necessarily come onto the same hymn sheet in terms of what that looks like. And that's one of the things that was really evident earlier this month in Bonn at the SBs, the intercessional negotiations that take place every June in Germany. They're kind of a, a process through which we can lay the foundations and the groundwork for successful COPs at the end of the year. But essentially... In my mind, what we need to be really looking for is firstly that question of loss and damage finance being addressed. So new money or actually a facility for money to be driven to developing countries to address their climate impacts. And then, you know, secondly, this question of how do we implement emissions reductions? One of the things being negotiated is a mitigation work program. This was something that was agreed at COP26. It sounds very technical, but essentially there's a UN process that needs to be agreed to focus on how countries can reduce emissions in the 2020s, the critical decade for halving emissions, if we're to keep 1.5 alive. That work program needs to be defined and, and agreed. And if we get an agreement on that, that could be a really powerful tool to allow countries to collaborate, to really bear down on their emissions in a constructive way. So those two things, a loss and damage facility and a mitigation work program, are probably some of the biggest items to come out of COP. But, you know, as we saw in Bonn, we're maybe a long way from actually agreeing that. So there's major questions over over how we move from here. And I think people are starting to think through actually what's the work needed, both technically but politically, to get those outcomes. Thanks very much. Let's talk a bit more about Bonn, this uh, preparatory meeting which took place now in June. And you've, of course, mentioned some of the issues already. But kind of coming out of that meeting, what's your impression of where we stand ahead of COP27? Are we in a good place, a bad place? It's disappointing to say that we're in a bad place, but I think that's probably the truth. I think it's important to contextualise what those bond negotiations can achieve. They are a very technical set of negotiations. They only have negotiators there. So they don't have ministers, they don't have leaders, they don't have the political direction that's often needed to deliver breakthroughs. And we weren't going into Bonn expecting major breakthroughs on some of these questions. But what we did see in Bonn, you know, was quite a long way away from perhaps the collaborative and cooperative spirit that we saw at COP26. At COP26, it was tense, it was difficult, but we got 197 countries agreeing to some pretty amazing things in terms of agreeing to phase down coal or or phase out fossil fuel subsidies. You know, we saw lots of new agreements coming forward. At Bonn, it does feel like now we're in a world where countries are starting to find that it's harder to trust each other. It's maybe harder to cooperate. Some of this is because we're in a very difficult geopolitical context. We have obviously a war, but we have food security crises, economic crises. The COVID pandemic is still raging on. It's a very difficult geopolitical environment for cooperation and for climate action. It's also because we've seen so many of the promises coming out of COP26 that are yet to be fulfilled. So there's the question of the 100 billion climate finance promise. That was one of the big issues at Glasgow. 
countries still haven't necessarily shown that that money is going to be delivered by 2023, which is when developed countries said that they expected it to be done by. So there's a number of kind of external factors that have built mistrust between developed and developing countries. And I think that was one of the things we really saw in negotiating rooms, that countries were starting to play games with the negotiations, holding issues up and playing tactics, rather than trying to collaboratively find the solutions and and a way to move forward. Tell me a bit more about this mitigation work program, what it is and what it could potentially achieve and what kind of the main sticking points were in in Bonn. I mean, the mitigation work program is a really interesting development in the UNFCCC. We've never really had a whole work program devoted to mitigation in this way before. It's kind of surprising, but, you know, there's been lots of processes for raising ambition, these NDCs, these nationally determined contributions, 2030 climate targets that countries can set and and then fulfil. All of that kind of existing process is good, but it's clearly inadequate because there's a massive gap between where we're heading on those climate targets and where we need to be for a 1.5 world. So, The point of the mitigation work program is to be able to close that gap in the 2020s. Earlier this year, we wrote a paper about this and tried to kind of look at what this mitigation work program could look like. And we saw a number of themes being picked up in the negotiations. I think probably one of the most interesting areas is around whether this work program can take a look at sectoral decarbonisation. I think the reason that's interesting is because, again, at COP26, we saw for the first time in the UN process a number of new signals coming out in the agreed text that pointed the way forward for sectoral decarbonisation. We saw the commitment to phase down coal. We saw the commitment to phase out fossil fuel subsidies. There's language in the COP26 decision text around the importance of ecosystems and nature and restoring the natural environment as a means to reduce emissions. And there's also language in there on non-CO2 emissions, so gases like methane, which are very potent, highly damaging to the climate and a really important piece of of meeting 1.5. So... The question now is, can we use the mitigation work programme to shine a spotlight on these sectors and to really push countries further and faster on decarbonising in those areas? It's a very contentious proposal because, and this is what we saw in Bonn, many countries feel like that any new processes to look at sectoral decarbonisation would potentially be infringing upon their own sovereignty to choose how they decarbonise. There's massive questions about who does what and at what scale, because you can look at an IEA report and see that they have a net zero pathway, but it means very different things for developed and developing economies in terms of the timescales, in terms of who does what and when. So these questions really, really came through. But at the same time, I think it's important that we now actually find collaborative ways forward so that a sectoral approach to decarbonisation can be achieved, because that's actually where the action happens. And this is what people have been talking about in terms of the UN climate talks. We're now moving from a process of negotiation to a process of implementation. The negotiators aren't necessarily always the right people to be talking about how we can decarbonise the transport industry or how we can decarbonise the coal sector, because they aren't those ministers in those line ministries. They aren't the people who necessarily write those plans back at home in in their capitals. So we need to close the gap between the world of the negotiations and the real world where the action's actually happening, the world of the implementers and the doers, that includes private sector actors, that includes the financial system and the multilateral development banks and and all of the non-state actors that actually deliver this real world action. So that's that's another opportunity of the work programme to kind of bring in non-state actors and actually create a collaborative, all-hands-on-deck approach to climate action at the UN. 
Just staying on the the mitigation aspect for a few more minutes, there was also this commitment in the Glasgow Climate Pact for governments to come back to the table already in 2022 for them to review and potentially enhance their 2030 NDCs. How is that going? Unfortunately, it's probably another one where you'd have to be saying it's disappointing so far. We haven't really seen scores of countries coming forward and, and saying that they're going to fulfill that commitment. And it's been very challenging, actually, for countries to do that for a number of reasons. Many countries feel like they'd already put forward good targets in the run-up to COP26, and they are questioning why they need to be the ones now coming forward with a new target. Other countries are you know, pointing to the challenging economic and, and political situation that climate transition now faces with spiking gas prices and with uncertain economic outlook and saying that that's you know, preventing them from moving, from moving forward with new climate targets. I think all of this is probably not the right way that we should be looking at this challenge because firstly, this is you know, what all countries agreed less than six months ago. And secondly, there is that need to improve our climate targets to close the gap. Some countries recently at the Major Economies Forum, which was a summit that President Biden held just after the bond negotiations, have started to now signal that they're going to be coming forward with new targets. So we've had some indications from the COP27 presidency, Egypt, and the COP28 presidency, the United Arab Emirates, that they will come forward with new NDCs this year. Indonesia confirmed that they might come forward with a new climate target. Mexico, also one of the major emitters in that pack that has said they'll come forward. Earlier this year, we we published a report with the World Resources Institute and with the Energy and Climate Intelligence Unit looking at the G20 major emitters and what they need to be doing to close this emissions gap. And it's really clear that if you look at the commitments made so far, countries like Brazil and, and Indonesia and Mexico, they submitted climate targets which are just not at the level that they need to be, in some cases, even weakening their climate targets. Other countries like India and China and Russia they have a huge potential to increase their climate targets and, and still need to do so. So there's there's hope. And, you know, actually, probably the biggest commitment so far this year is Australia. They had a new Labour government come in and now they've actually submitted a new NDC for a 43% reduction by 2030. So there's, you know, signs of hope, but the overall context is is challenging. And I think certainly as we get closer and closer to COP, countries are going to be more and more reminded by civil society that they're not meeting those commitments and they're going to have to come up with an answer. So yeah, that's one one thing to watch for sure. Returning to this issue of loss and damage, what are some of the main challenges in those discussions? So the big fight at Bonn and, and as we approach COP is around the need to establish a loss and damage facility. So again, back at COP26, this was one of the major issues that was probably left unresolved. Essentially, the entire group of developing countries, the bloc known as the G77 in China, came forward with a clear and united call that they wanted to see an outcome on, on loss and damage that would lead to the creation of a facility. A facility being some sort of mechanism or vehicle through which finance for loss and damage, finance to address these climate impacts could be channeled. And that would actually start addressing major gaps in the financial system. If you look at the ecosystem of disaster relief, of climate finance, there are gaps as to how some of these impacts are being addressed because loss and damage isn't the same as humanitarian relief. Humanitarian relief often, for instance, would act in the immediate aftermath of a disaster, but loss and damage could be a very slow onset event that unfolds over, over many decades because it's steady sea level rise that slowly erodes low-lying islands and communities. 
So this question of whether or not to establish a loss and damage facility is, is probably one of the big the big fights. But actually, what we saw in Bonn wasn't even a discussion of the loss and damage facility, but a discussion of whether there should be an agenda item to discuss loss and damage and loss and damage finance at the COP. So it's a very technical debate as to whether there should even be space on the formal negotiating agenda for these discussions to take place. There's a considerable number of big questions in the loss and damage finance debate that need to be unpacked. One of the big sticking points that developed countries, and especially countries like the US, cite is this question of liability and compensation. In the Paris Agreement, in fact, there's articles on loss and damage which clearly state that countries can't be held responsible and and be due liability and compensation for loss and damage because the US had these concerns back in 2015 that they could be held as a major emitter responsible for some of the impacts of climate change. But really, the debate's moving kind of quite far beyond that to actually start looking at, you know, how do we address these climate impacts? Because what's now clear and what's now clear from COP26 and and what's clear from the discussions in Bonn is that the system isn't working. The system is broken. There's been a process at Bonn known as the Glasgow Dialogue. This was a convening held in the sidelines of the negotiations between developed and developing countries to look at this question of how we tackle loss and damage. And the discussion was very difficult. Countries weren't seeing eye to eye. And, you know, one of the key takeaways, I think, from that dialogue was the fact that the system isn't working the finance isn't there, there needs to be an answer. But exactly what that answer looks like is still really up for debate. And it's it's definitely set to be probably the big issue at COP27. So you mentioned that uh, developed countries are reluctant to uh, support a facility like this, uh, at least partly because of this potential liability and compensation dimension. Is that the whole story? Or are there other arguments why they're also opposing the establishment of such a facility? It's not the whole story. I think. There's a number of arguments saying that, you know, essentially, why do we need a new facility? Because existing funds and mechanisms might be able to work. There's funds like the Green Climate Fund, which, you know, developed countries point to and say, well, this could be a way to channel loss and damage finance. There's other funds like the Adaptation Fund, which could finance loss and damage to some extent. There's the work that could be done outside of the UNFCCC and outside of these UN funds, for instance, you know, most recently at the G7, there's been a lot of initiatives around a so-called global risk shield that would bring together different insurance mechanisms and and other uh, protection mechanisms to actually then channel loss and damage and address loss and damage outside the UN space. So countries like the EU and the US would essentially say the facility isn't necessary because we have systems in place and we can improve them and refine them. The counter argument from developing countries is that those systems aren't working. We see, you know, for instance, the Green Climate Fund. It's this fund that has been very slow to disperse money. It's a very politically charged fund and the process of approving grants takes a very long time and involves very long debates. So how could that easily and quickly and effectively respond to a typhoon devastating 110% of the GDP of a Caribbean island. It it doesn't match up to the urgency and the severity of what's needed. Likewise, with initiatives outside of the UNFCCC, there is a lot that could be done in terms of coordinating and improving and strengthening the various initiatives and systems that we have in place. But I think many developing countries feel that it needs to happen in the UN because that's where the proper home of loss and damage finance discussions 
is loss and damage is recognized in the Paris Agreement as an important pillar of action for global climate action. And, you know, it's the multilateral approach is needed to tackle a multilateral system. There's concerns, for instance, that if you set up funds outside of the UN or outside of certain uh, multilateral processes, you might be then picking and choosing who gets lost in damage finance. You might only be targeting certain groups of countries and not prioritising all developing countries or all countries who are receiving impacts. So there's inevitably, when money comes up in these debates, there's going to be fights over of who gets what share and who and how it's dispersed. And I think that's what we're seeing in terms of the debate over a loss and damage facility. Thanks so much, Tom. In Bonn, there were also discussions about something called the Global Goal on Adaptation. What is that? Yeah, the Global Goal on Adaptation is one of the big mysteries of the Paris Agreement, essentially. So back in 2015, we agreed the Paris Agreement. And in the Paris Agreement, there are three main global goals, if you want. There's the first one on emissions reduction. And that's really clear. It's to reduce global warming to two degrees, ideally 1.5. And we know what that looks like in practice. We have the IPCC reports that delineate the need to halve emissions this decade and reach net zero by mid-century. So that's very clear. We also have a goal on finance. So the long-term finance goal, essentially trying to realign the global economy and global financial flows with the Paris Agreement to deliver the climate action we need. That is relatively clear. And there's a process in the UN now trying to define a new collective quantified goal, a new post-2025 climate finance goal that will replace the 100 billion goal that I mentioned earlier. And that process is ongoing. And then there's this third goal, which is the global goal on adaptation. But it's been entirely undefined and no one actually has a sense of what that means or what that looks like. If you ask someone what's a global goal on adaptation, you'll often have very long answers because essentially it's very hard to define a singular definition of adaptation. Adaptation happens at many different levels. It can happen at the local and community level, the regional level, the national level. So how do you build all of that up into a single global goal You could define the goal very vaguely and say, oh, it's about protecting communities and protecting people from the climate crisis. But that's not necessarily useful because what we want out of a goal is something that we can then build plans and policies and investment around to try and deliver that. So it has to be specific. And, and essentially, yeah, in Bonn, we saw the beginning of a process, a multi-year process to try and define this goal. It's very much long overdue. And now negotiators are sitting down and trying to define this global goal on adaptation. So it sounds like there's a lot yet to do, and we're, of course, only a few months away from COP27. What needs to happen between now and COP27, then? Where should governments and other stakeholders be focusing their efforts? Yeah, this is a, a big question, because we've only got, as you say, a few months to go, and there's a long to-do list. I think the absolute priority and the, the key thing we need to do in the next few months is build the political will for a successful COP27. And that sounds very commonplace. It's probably something that every COP needs. But I think what we saw in Bonn and what we've seen over the past six months is leaders who are distracted. They're not focused on the climate crisis. They are facing, yes, a very difficult geopolitical environment. They're facing challenges at home with their economies. But if we can't bring political spotlight and attention on the COP, It's just going to be very difficult to have any breakthroughs. And I think to kind of dig a bit deeper into what I mean by political attention on the COP, I think what we really need is leaders and ministers 
who are willing to champion key issues and are willing to have productive conversations with their partners in, in other governments to try and start building bridges between different negotiating groups rather than settling in on division and, and playing games as we saw at the SBs. So on the question of, of mitigation, we really need to use some of the countries I mentioned earlier who are coming forward with new NDCs this year, who are coming forward with ambition and build them up and make them leverage that internationally so that they can apply pressure on other countries to do the same. We need countries who are willing to have conversations about loss and damage finance to sit down and have the frank, difficult and honest conversations with climate vulnerable countries about what that could actually look like. We've seen some signs of hope. Canada is a country that certainly comes to mind where we've seen their climate minister saying that you know he would be open to having proper chats about loss and damage finance and recognising the need to address it. Other countries, perhaps like Germany, who've expressed you know through their G7 presidency a great deal of interest in loss and damage, could be champion countries of, of starting to address that, that question. But it's really about taking it away from the negotiators and to the ministers and to the leaders. And there's you know a number of moments between now and COP27 come to mind. I think key of all, the United Nations General Assembly in September, that's the big leaders level summit. And I think we should definitely expect leaders to come there prepared to start having those conversations at the highest level as to what a COP27 outcome could actually look like that satisfies all sides, that bridges the divides that we've seen so far in these, in these tense debates. Tom Evans, it's been so fascinating talking to you today. Thanks for taking the time. Thanks very much for having me. So that's this for today. Thanks so much for listening. We'll be back shortly with another podcast. In the meantime, please do feel free to check out previous episodes, which are available on Spotify, Libsyn, the Chatham House website, and all other major podcast outlets. Bye! Thank you.